0: Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and his unique plan for your life. awkward yet for some of y'all wondering if I got cold feet or maybe you're wondering if I was in the restroom and you don't want to rush things in the restroom that's never a good idea <laughs> medically proven i wanted to create a little bit of awkward silence put a little bit of tension in the room you see every single week i know because i'm here as well that you come and you experience Worship, an incredible time of worship, and you experience a message. And that happens every Sunday, week after week. And that happens in churches all across the globe. And it's been happening that way for hundreds of years, right? So when one Sunday you show up and there's powerful worship, and the lights come on, and nobody's there, something clicks off in your head. And you have to ask yourself the question, is something wrong? We have this heightened sense of awareness. And I think it's because we're wired for patterns, for predictability, right? If we can kind of expect what's about to happen, we have some feeling of control, right? I think even for people who say, well, I don't want my life to be too predictable. I love surprises. I would say you probably love surprises as long as they're all good surprises, right? I've never heard anybody talk about how excited that they were. You imagine their boss calls them in and they're like, surprise, you're fired. You know, pop, confetti. That's not a good surprise, right? We like surprises only if they're good surprises. And there's an element of predictability and control in that, right? We wanna be able to throttle how much tension is placed on us. The problem is the world doesn't offer us that kind of control. We find ourselves thrown in tension over and over again. As we've been talking about in our series here, it's a mad, mad world. We find ourselves facing all kinds of tension, right? We're in political tension, social tension, racial tension, cultural tension, religious tension, economical tension. And that's all on top of the inner tension that we feel, general questions like, am I good enough? Can I do this, right? And so in those moments of tension, we can feel very alone. It can feel like God has left the room, not unlike an empty stage, right? And so we have to ask ourselves, how do I respond in those moments of tension, What is it that I do? And I want to present us with two options. The first, as believers, in those moments of tension when it feels like God has left the room, you can either grab a hold of what you know to be true about God, what you've learned in scriptures, what you've experienced in worship, what you know to be true about how he's moved in your life and the lives of those around you. And you can lean in to the tension, right? It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. Or we can short-circuit. We can go the path of least resistance and we can seek to relieve the tension in some other way. And I think we even might try to do that in ways that seem kind of honorable. I don't know about you, but I find myself as a little bit more of a short-circuiter at times. Any short-circuiter's in here? I, um, I, wanna, I wanna kind of go through an Exodus 32. We're gonna, we're gonna camp out there for a little bit. Um, but I wanna tell you the story of some Israelites who I believe short-circuited, right? They were in a moment where they felt like God had left the room and they went the path of least re- resistance. So before we get to uh, Exodus 32, I want to give you a little backstory. There's these uh, Israelites who were enslaved in Egypt for like 430 years. Okay, Pharaoh and all the other leaders are not nice to them. Long story short, God calls Moses up and he's like, hey, I've got a plan. And Moses is like, as long as it doesn't involve public speaking. And he's like, it does. And he's like, I'm not good at that. And he's like, okay, we'll send your brother Aaron, right? And so the two of them go together and they perform these different miracles and there's these plagues and things. And they warn Pharaoh what's going on. If you don't let these people go, bad things are going to happen. Bad things happen. Pharaoh ultimately cries, uncle. Uncle. When his firstborn is taken from him, the Israelites leave. And this is where the excitement begins, okay? This is where the magic is happening because God is moving and shaking and bringing them into the promised land. He's told them, I'm going to go ahead of you, right? I'm going to lead you to the promised land. So they're beginning to see things like a pillar of smoke by day, a pillar of fire by night, right? And these Israelites... You know, despite having come from this extreme hardship of being under Pharaoh's, uh, you know, enslavement, they're a little bit like the kids on the back seat to Disney World, right? Like, they're headed to somewhere really cool, but they're like, I'm hungry, you know, like, all they can do on the way is kind of complain. And so they see even further miracles, where they're hungry, and God allows manna to come down from the sky, right? And it feeds them. Uh, They're given water, but they say, it's too bitter, you know? And so then Moses and God, they turn it into sweet water. And then another time, they're thirsty, and Moses strikes a rock with his staff, and water comes out. And then finally, there is this moment where the Israelites, or sorry, the Egyptians have decided, hey, we shouldn't have let those people go. That was like the bulk of the people that would do work for us, right? We should go get them. So they come in hot pursuit of the Israelites, and God has this plan to lead them through the sea. And uh, he allows Moses, he gives them the authority to part the sea. If you all have seen the Ten Commandments movie, you've seen this uh, on, on, the, on the big screen. And uh, so he parts it, the Israelites cross, the Egyptians come, it closes back over, wipes them out. So long story short, they're seeing Moses as this direct kind of mediator, connection to God, who has an incredible way to bring Yahweh, which is the name of God, his presence among the people and they've seen God doing amazing things, but then something happens. God engages with them through Moses, and uh, he tells them the Ten Commandments, you know, and he gives them some other instruction for living, and they say, we will do all that you have commanded, all right? And then there's this period of silence, because Moses goes to the top of Mount Sinai to get this in writing, okay, the, the Ten Commandments, those tablets. And uh, so this is where we're at in the journey so far. So speaking of journey, if you're with me, say, don't stop believing. Hey, it looks like you're with me. All right, so a journey joke in church, how about that? Um, we're going to go to Exodus 32, and we're going to pick up here, and I think it'll be up on the screen for you. All right, it says, when Moses saw, I'm sorry, when the people saw that Moses was so long and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and they said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. You should know that Moses has been gone. You know, it says in total he was gone for like 40 days and 40 nights. And in the the Bible, when we see the number 40, it's something that indicates the type of time. You know, so it could be 40 days, it could be more, it could be less. But it also means something about uh, it being a time of trial and temptation. If you can recall Jesus being tempted in the desert for 40 days, the Israelites wandering uh, in the desert for 40 years. It's something that tells you the nature of that time. And so we know that at this point. And so they're worried. He's, he's kind of not in the picture for a while. So they want these other gods. And Aaron, who is Moses' brother, and he's kind of like the man in charge, right? Uh, he answered to them, uh, and this is starting in 2. He says, Take off your gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings, and they brought them to Aaron. He took what he had handed them, and he made it into an idol cast into the shape of a calf fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now previously we've heard God say when he started off telling them the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Okay, so this is like ringing a bell to the readers of this text and to the people who are hearing it. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. This is a festival that was, you know, kind of dedicated for Yahweh himself. Um, so the next day, the people rose early and they sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings, all of which would have been a normal part of this festival for the Lord. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and they got up to indulge in revelry. All right, things are getting a little sideways at the bottom of the mountain, right? There's two ways to understand this. The first way, which is, I think, more of a, a traditional and common way, is to say, these people are something like, I don't know, uh, you know, your moody, crazy ex-girlfriend, ex-boyfriend who, after you didn't call him back and text them, is like, I'm moving on, you know. And uh, to kind of paint them as people who have been with God and suddenly can just change like that on the flip of a switch to want these other gods now. It's just kind of the flavor of the week type situation, right? And if you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, I think, again, that's kind of how they're portrayed. I think one of my favorite scenes is Moses comes down from the mountain. He sees what they're doing. This is Charlton Heston, okay? So he's got this gorgeous white beard and flowing hair and stuff. And he takes the Ten Commandments, and he's like, what are you doing? And then Aaron's like, what's your problem, Moses? Which Aaron wasn't quite like that, right? And the best part is Moses takes the Ten Commandments. In the Bible, he smashes them on the ground. In the movie, he throws them at the golden calf, the golden calf explodes and the ground opens up and all the people fall in, which that didn't happen, right? That's a little bit of Hollywood for you. And so they're painted as these kind of horrid, horrid, horrid people. And yeah, they, they did wrong, okay, in this moment. But I would like to make another suggestion that maybe these people weren't so, maybe their goal wasn't to be as against or to um, replace Yahweh fully with something. Maybe what they were doing was just short-circuiting a little bit. That was, they were taking a little bit of what they knew of their faith, what Yahweh was doing, okay? And then they took a little bit of their culture and they muddled it up, right? Basically God, it felt like, was not in the room and they started to take things into their own hands. And I would, I would, I would kind of make the argument like this. There's five things here uh, that can kind of lead us to some of that, just that thought process. The first is that in the scripture, there's a little bit of scholarly debate about the use of the word gods, plural, okay? In the Hebrew, it's Elohim, which you might recognize as a name for God, Yahweh. And this is a word that can be used, and mostly used in the plural form, but it can also be used in the singular form. So it may not have been the case that they were asking for gods, plural. The other thing that's weird about that is they appear to ask for gods, and yet there's a singular calf that is produced. And so some would say, again, maybe their intention was, you know, they've got this... God who has led them in doing these things and what they want is a God, and they say specifically, who can go ahead of us. Remember that Yahweh's told them, I will go ahead of you. So you can start to link some things up there. The other piece is is Moses appears to be gone, right? And so they're wanting something to kind of usher in the presence. They feel like they need something to bring God to the picture because tomorrow is is the festival of the Lord and it kind of looks like he's not going to show up for his own party. You all with me? And so, um, The other thing that happens that I think is kind of interesting is let's imagine this Mount Sinai. Moses is at the top. The people are at the bottom and they're revelry, right? In Exodus 25, Moses is given instruction on how to build the ark, okay? And even though it's a previous chapter, I think it's something that can happen at the same time, right? Moses is at the top and he's getting instruction on how to build the ark and it tells him, God tells him, you would take up an offering of gold and silver and bronze and all this other stuff and then he instructs him to use the gold to, to build pieces of the ark, okay, including two cherubs. Do you all remember the cherubs on the top of the ark? They have the wings facing each other like this. And then God said, it is in that place above the ark that I will meet with you. So you've got, it's not that unusual, right? Like you've got this concept now of something where you take up a gold offering and it's man-made and God is, his presence is ushered in with that. That's the top of the mountain. The bottom of the mountain, they take up an offering of gold and silver it's man-made, and the idea is that they want to usher in the presence of God with that. The difference is that at the top of the mountain is God's way, right? God is giving instruction on how this is to happen. The bottom of the mountain is man's way. The bottom of the mountain is where they took things into their own hands, and they chose a bull of all things, right? A bull in the ancient Near Eastern culture was a symbol of strength and power, Okay, so you can kind of imagine them having this conversation. You know, Moses is hearing, make two cherubs, and they're like, what do we do? You know, we need like the the coolest thing. You know, if God's presence is going to be ushered in, we don't want to pick like a rabbit or a squirrel. We want something strong, right? And so they pick a bull, this ultimate symbol of strength and power, kind of like the way you you and I think of maybe an eagle as like the symbol for patriotism. The problem with that is they completely missed Or they forgot, or they just tuned out what God told them before, which is to not make any graven images of anything in the air, on the land, including bulls, or in the sea, and don't bow down and worship it. So in taking things into their own hands, they did that. But the point, part of this, is to kind of point out again that maybe their intention is to bring Yahweh into this, but they want to do it on their terms, right? Because they feel the tension, and they want to short-circuit just a little bit. And then finally you have the festival of the Lord where we read and they're doing these offerings and and, and sacrifices. And again, these are things that would have been normally done. Um, So there's maybe a possible connection to what Yahweh's kind of told them there as well. But the end of that kind of shows the short circuit of the whole situation, right? They got up and they indulged in like this drunken revelry, this craziness, okay? The purpose for going through all of that with you is to allow us to step into that narrative a little bit. Sometimes we can read scripture, we wanna kind of, be on the side of the good guy. We wanna say, well, I'm one of those. You know? How would I do this? And I want these Israelites to become a little bit more human to you and I. I want us to become uh, maybe able to see ourselves in them. And I wanna do that by asking you, have you ever had a moment in your life, in your faith life especially, where you felt like God has left the room and you wanted to take things into your own hands? Anybody? Am I the only one? I've done that. Um, Have you ever felt like God was telling you something, and maybe you're like, well, but also if I could just do it this way, that would be cool too. This is not that unusual for us. And these are short circuits. And I wanted to cover a couple of short circuits, okay? I think one of the, the, the short circuits, the things that we can go to when things get tense, right, when we experience the madness of this world, to try to appease and, and lower that tension is distraction. We can distract ourselves. I think in this age we've gotten really good at distracting ourselves. How many of y'all have a, a smartphone? I think a lot of people probably have, some people are like, I don't have a smartphone, I'm good. Um, it's, it's no secret that those things are incredible tools, but they can be weapons of mass distraction, right? They can pull us out of the world that we're in, and then suddenly you're reading articles about people who have walked off of a cliff because they were looking at their smartphone and falling to their death, right? I have a flip phone. I had a smartphone for the longest time, and I thought I'd go old school. I thought it would be like the new hipster, but it's not catching on um, for some reason. And the thing that drove that was I felt like my phone was driving me. I don't know that I would consider myself a full-on addict to it, but I know there were moments where I was having a good time. I was with my family, or maybe I was in here, and I'd get some headline or something that would just create anxiety in me, right? And the phone got to choose when that happened. The phone got to choose how I felt at any given moment. All of those little moments in between in life, I would give it over to the phone. I'd sit down and I'd get on Facebook and I'd do whatever, and usually I would just get angry because I don't like what people are saying on Facebook, right? And so this was starting to mess with me a little bit. And I'd been thinking for a long time, what would happen if I just stepped away? And it was really just in an effort to see what I'm missing. I wanted to see what what was being lost in the process and I made this discovery, okay? Traditionally, we think, and I'm gonna say we, now I'm talking my generation and older, okay? Um, The older generations think that the younger generations are supposed to show us how to use technology. Is that normal? We kind of think that way, like they're gonna show us, they know how to use it, they're on the cutting edge. But I would argue that we are in a unique position where we have straddled now a world pre-smartphone, pre-computer entertainment with us at all times, and post-smartphone world, okay? So we have the ability, if we do a little bit of reflection, to remember what was lost, okay? Because we know the world without it, and now we know the world with it. We knew the world when we engaged in awkward conversation with people while sitting next to them at the doctor's office, instead of everybody doing this, right? And now we know the world where everybody can just do this. We know a world where you have to, you know, if you were waiting for something, you're forced to just look around the room and maybe get a creative idea. And now we know a world where you're being fed all of your ideas, right? And so I would argue that the older generation, as a way of leaning into the tension, is actually the one that is supposed to show the younger generation how to use this technology. Does that make sense? The younger generation can show us how to operate it. They can show us what it does. But as older people, we have the responsibility and I feel like the obligation to remind our younger people, our sons, our daughters, our grandsons, the people that we're mentoring, that we are mentoring. If you said, I'm in a couple of weeks ago, some of those people to remind them. This is an important tool and I love what it can do. But also don't forget to look up every once in a while. Don't forget to open yourself up for conversation because you never know what kind of ministry can happen in those moments and those spaces in between. I think another way that we short-circuit is through control, right? And this is, I'm thinking, and all of these can overlap a little bit, but this would be like addiction. So, interestingly enough, our smartphones can be a way where we start off being distracted, and they can sort of feed addictions, right? Pornography is more accessible to us than it has ever been, and the statistics for the number of pornographic searches that are happening on smartphones is staggering. And this is something that I'd struggled with in the past, so I feel sensitive to this. I feel sensitive to the way that this is growing in our culture. Um, if you're somebody who struggles with maybe exercising too much or an eating disorder, overeating, undereating, whatever it is, all you have to do is get on Instagram, and you've got these people with chiseled abs, and they're like, I'm here to inspire you, you know? And all it's doing, that, pornography, all those things, all of the above, is you kind of indulge in it for a second, and then you feel like garbage afterwards, right? Right? But all of those things, those little addictions, it doesn't matter what it is, are ways that we try to control our little, tiny world. We try to control how we feel, right? We can take the edge off with certain chemicals, right? We can go and burn off our stress with certain types of exercise. And I'm not saying that exercise is bad, but y'all, there is a limit, you know? And food is healthy, but to learn how to uh, appreciate that and what God's given us is a delicate, delicate and very difficult situation for some people. And all it takes is, again, just a little something, right? And it can drive us in the wrong direction. So I think in those moments, we can lean in as well. I, I, you know, I've told a few people this, but one of the conversations as a father of two boys that I'm going to have with my sons about the Internet is going to sound a lot like the conversation that my parents had with me about guns. My dad was in the military. We had guns in the house. And he said, um, a gun is a tool It can be used for hunting. It can be used for self-defense. It can also be used to hurt or kill someone. It can be used to hurt or kill yourself. And one last thing, a bullet is indiscriminate about its target. All it does is go exactly where you point it, and it will rip through everything until it can go no more. The conversation with Elliot and Everett and any other kids, if we have them, I'm not saying we are, yeah, uh, (laughs) is the Internet is a tool. It can be used to help you. It can be used to research right? To kind of hunt down information. It can also be used to kill and destroy. And we've read these stories about where people are attacked on the internet and they're driven to suicide, right? It can also be used and aimed at yourself. We expose ourselves to so many things that we don't even know are killing us, right? The information that we point right here is killing us. That's the gravity of the situation, that's how aware we need to be of the world. That's how aware we need to be of our distractions, of the things that sneak into our lives that give us a false sense of control. And so again, the call is to grab on to what we know God has told us, what we know about his character, and lean into that. Don't give into it. Don't conform to that pattern, but be transformed. Finally, and this is a hard one for me, um, denial. I think in a mad, mad crazy mad crazy angry world some of us just go to denial and my fear is that we can do that through the church and through our faith i want to tell you a story uh, growing up where i grew up there were some kids across the street and uh one day they were playing frisbee and uh, anybody want to play a little bit of frisbee anybody all right all right we got chase heads up you guys all right here we go did we do it oh hey you can have that you can have it that's yours so the difference between that Frisbee that I just threw to Chase and the Frisbee that my neighbors were throwing across the street is that is silicone, and it's nice and soft, it wouldn't hurt too bad. They were throwing a saw blade, like a skill saw blade at each other. All right. Yeah, they were cray, y'all, all right? And so, inevitably, they would do stuff like this all the time. They were nuts. And so my mom would go over, and sometimes I was with her, and she would have a little mom-to-mom conversation with their mom. And it went like this several times, knock on the door, and she'd come out, and she'd have her little Bible, and, and my mom would say, you know your kids are throwing saw blades at each other, right? And she would be like, oh, I don't know, I was just reading my Bible, I was just reading my Bible. And it was like, that's, that's your answer, right? You were just holed up in your room reading your Bible, which sounds noble, and that's good, we should do that, but... She was in total denial. Like, if I knew more about the Bible, then I'd be like, okay, well, go ahead and skip to Proverbs 13 and Proverbs 23 and get into those parts where it talks about loving your child by disciplining them with the rod, okay, because they need a little bit of biblical loving right now. Skip to that part and then go and do it. And so I wonder about how we do that, right? Right? And I think it's pervasive in the church. And I wanted to share with you all some statistics about how millennials, these are the young people, um, how they see the church. And uh, there were some some top reasons that millennials are not going to church. One is because it was fake. It was two-faced. You say one thing and you do another. The other one is that the church is exclusive. A lot of churches claim to love God and love people. And maybe they love God, but they don't really show love to people very well, at least according to the millennial, right? The other one is that it doesn't care about the community, which is interesting, that essentially the church is prone to stay within the four walls of the church. Now we do a lot of things as a community, and so this isn't to like make you guys feel bad about things, but I you know remember that sometimes we do these activities we come in here on the four walls and then we do life groups and these other groups and things like that, and we're continually surrounding ourselves with people that think like us a little bit right and so maybe that one's Valid. Maybe it's not that we don't care about the community. We're just not as intentional about going out and kind of mingling with others. Um, they, say, they say the church is aggressive and hypercritical. So instead of rejecting culture, what they want is for the church to step in to try to redeem culture. Instead of doing this to people, maybe we do this and show them how God can redeem them in the process. Right. And then finally, we ignore the big issues. They have lots of questions. They have lots of doubts. They see what's going on in the world. They look at the mad, crazy world, right? They watch the headlines, and they want to know what in the world we're supposed to do. But sometimes we just tiptoe around some of those subjects. I want to read you an excerpt from a letter from August 16, 1963. Compare that with what we've just heard. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. Again, that was in 1963. Who wrote that? Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. He was, as you know, in the midst of a battle for civil rights for African American people. The world has always existed in terms of insiders and outsiders. That's always been the case. Insiders are people who tend to resemble in some way in belief or in look or whatever in culture. They resemble the people in power. The outsiders are usually the ones who don't. If you have to ask yourself whether you're an insider or an outsider, you're probably an insider because outsiders always know where they are. The problem is... We, sometimes in our denial as a church, sometimes a church with a lot of insiders, right? Um, and remember that, that as an insider, you're not challenged as much. It's not to say you don't have challenges, but the system that's in place um, doesn't affect you the same way that it affects the outsiders, okay? Um, and the problem is that we, in our attempt, and it's a good attempt, to find a middle way in Jesus, to say that he's neutral, we interpret neutrality as silence, as paralysis. As Dr. King would have said, we prefer, I guess we kind of uh, maybe put order over justice, right? This goes back to a church who is rejecting things instead of finding ways to redeem them. They're distancing themselves from the madness of the world. And what that tells the outsider is that Christ is not in the middle, he is actually in the middle of the insider groups. Are y'all with me on that? I know some of this is kind of touchy. And so what I think our call is in this moment, as a church, in the context of an extremely tense environment, is to lean in once again. In my mind, there is no reason why the church can't focus on Christ as the center, to say that Christ is neutral in this, and he has a way of causing the insider to lean to the outsider the privilege to lean out to the marginalized, right? And for the outsider to lean into the insider, that there's a way that Christ brings us together because we have to come to the realization that we need each other. Liberals need Republicans. Republicans need liberals. Even if you don't agree and you don't think that, we need each other. People of color need each other, all colors. People of all nations, we need one another because together we actually hold the fuller picture of humanity. We can hold each other accountable in certain ways. We can ask the right questions. As one author that I read a while back put it, we have a little piece of the picture by ourselves, and we hold that sometimes thinking that we have the whole picture. And what we need to do is get together with people from other places because they are holding their picture thinking they're holding the whole picture. But together it forms a fuller picture. And this is the way that Christ can lead us to break outside of the walls of this church and engage with the world, to lean into it, to have open conversations, to have uplifting conversations, to listen to one another's story, maybe to exercise a little bit of empathy, that you could hear my side and I could hear your side, and we could say, you know what, I still don't agree, but I see you as a person. And that means the world to them, and that means the world to me, that we can have this kind of existence together. And I believe that that's a dream, amen, yeah, that can come true for us. Now, I was telling my friend about some of what I was gonna talk about, uh, about leaning in, and he said, what about us? Don't we get like a break, you know? Like, it kind of seems like our, our role is to just constantly go, 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 go. And I said, good news. We do have a way to escape, right? It's called the Sabbath. We are forgetting to Sabbath. Um, you know, I would say the Sabbath, when you think of, What that is let me think here Uh, when i was in college i used to run my tank on empty all the time anybody do that you have a couple of bucks and you just fill it up so you're constantly like somewhere between e and a quarter of a tank and you fill it up a little bit and my dad told me he's a man of full of wisdom he said you know you could run it on full just the same as you run it on empty right (laughs) he said you run it on empty you get all this crud and sediment in the bottom and it's not good and and uh you know if you're running it on empty like that what happens if you get in traffic What happens if you have to take a detour? What happens if you get lost, right? Or you just need to up and go somewhere? I can't tell you all how many times, and Jenny's been there for a lot of them, where I've run out of gas, all right? We're pushing my little Honda up on the feeder of 59, you know, another time I'm having to push the car right after a workout, and it was like, I can't. I ran out of gas a lot, because I ran it on the bottom, and what a Sabbath does, a routine way that we can kind of step back and lean into God for a little bit, What that does is that fills our tank so that when we go and we top it off with these little, maybe weekend getaways or these small little things, we're running off the top. Because every once in a while in your life, it may feel like God has left the room. All right? Some of the reason why we don't know what to do when it feels like God has left the room is because we haven't spent any time with him. Imagine what would have happened to the Israelites, okay, if they'd have done that, if they'd have leaned in and listened. For one... The way that story kind of comes to a bit of a semi conclusion is that they are all wiped out, right? Uh, Moses basically comes down and he says, Pick a side. And so the Levites all come running to him. And the rest of them, I guess, are too drunk to walk. I don't really know. And so uh, he says, Go and basically wipe them out. And so the Levites go and wipe them out. These were the priests of the Old Testament. So I would kind of gather that nobody fell asleep during their sermons for at least a couple of years, right? We need to be able to to, to lean into God, and we've got to find regular time to do that, because otherwise all we're doing is we're leading ourselves to short circuit over and over and over again, okay? So, my question to you is, where are you? Is God in the room? I've got a little bit of time here. A part of what's written there in Exodus 32, when Moses hears what's going on down there, he comes down the mountain, And Joshua's with him, and Joshua's kind of a battle, war guy. And he says, there's a sound of war in the camp. And the sound, that word in Hebrew, is kind of an ominous sound. That's like in a movie when you hear that low cello, "Mm," you know. It's not a good sound, right? It's a dubious sound. And Moses corrects him, and he says, it's not the sound of victory, nor is it the sound of defeat, but it is the sound of singing I hear. A Greek translation of that says it's the sound of wine, right? Like drinking wine. And I got hung up on that verse. And I kept thinking victory, defeat, and this other sound, right? Some of us are so afraid to engage that we neither engage in something that brings victory or defeat. We get lost in this other sound, this noise. And let me tell you something, that God can use your victory. God will be with you in the victory, and God will use your defeat. We see that in the Bible. What God doesn't really know what to do with is the other sound. So my encouragement to you today is don't get lost in the other sound. Be brave, be fearless, step out there, lean into the world, okay? If you're struggling with distractions, set up some boundaries. If you're struggling with addiction, more boundaries, but also seek help. Seek either pastoral help or or, or just full-on professional help because some of us need it. And if you find yourself maybe thinking that a church is a place to go to just full-on get away from the madness of the world. Be reminded that Christ called us to step in and to be salt and light in the world. And that's what I have for you today. That short-circuiting is a pathway to disaster. And, and I would tell you, too, that um, doing this is gonna be hard as hell, okay? But God is willing to storm the gates of hell with you if you are. And he has shown that in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for being a God that we can lean into. God, that you can be our fortress, our refuge, not so that we can camp out there forever, but that we can be made well, that we can be restored, and we can be readied for battle, God. That we can lean into the madness of this world, that we can seek to lock arms with people who are different from us, who may think differently, look differently, and feel differently, and find ways to be united in Christ's name. We love you, and it is in In your name we pray this. Amen. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.